and welcome to episode 214 of the Waters Wave Them podcast. I'm your host, Wei Shen, and as usual, I have Tony with me here today. Hey, T, how is it going? Good, good. I was almost, after uh, three straight 13-plus-hour uh, days, I was almost going to write you right before us and be like, you know what, ask Joanna to, to sit in for me this week. But like a trooper, here I am, sitting on my balcony, having a... Uh, having a Moscow mule from uh, the restaurant from across the street. So I'm ready to go. Nice. I wish I was having a Moscow mule too. Two. <laughs> it's 11 p.m. It's fine for you now. Actually, almost midnight <laughs> or, 11, or noon for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> so <laughs> we have some really good stories on the website this week. Why don't you tell yeah. the audience a little bit about that? Sure. Uh, well, first... Uh, we're the ones to write about what uh, Refanative is going to... You might have seen uh, a headline going around about how Refanative is going to be... Basically, they're not going to use the term sunsetting, but it is what it is. Uh, the Icon platform and Thompson One, the legacy Thompson One platform. Um, so Max Bowie wrote a really good story about this new thing they have called uh, Workspace. Um and right now it's just available for advisors and wealth managers but for hedge funds traders quants developers people like that they're going to be rolling that out though they don't have a timetable yet on that um but so max gets into how workspaces is different than kind of the legacy platform strategy that they had in the past mm. and uh you know kind of gets into what that will mean for users of icon and of thompson one so go read that. And uh, on Thursday morning, uh, so we're recording this on Wednesday night right now, but tomorrow morning for us. But by the time this goes live, it'll be live. Re uh, Rebecca Natel, Reb Natel, writes about Figgy. The oh, shit, I should have looked. This up. <laughs> I forget what Figgy stands for, but it's Bloomberg's identifier, the <laughs> global identifier, financial. I don't know. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> I literally spent six or seven hours today editing that. Like, it was a good story, but it just took a lot of time to go through. And so it's amazing that I can't remember what Figgy actually stands for. <laughs> um, but yeah, so this builds off of a story that we wrote last year. You know, Bloomberg tried to get this um, accredited with uh, the ISO. That didn't work out. There was supposed to be something else that uh, happened with the ISO, another vote that was supposed to happen. That never ma materialized. Um, so now Bloomberg's trying um, to go on its kind of country-by-country country uh, strategy to get accredited. And there's also this SEC. The SEC's taken an interest in it and a couple of recent proposals that they've had. So Reb gets into that. Uh, really good long feature on that. Um, I would tell you more, but, you know, you got to subscribe, man. You, you know, that, that you know the podcast we give to you for free because we love you you know we love you and so we, we we you know we we're there for you with some good content for everybody but you want the really the good the good man you gotta gotta pay up for it so uh you, you know take out a subscription or find a friend that has a subscription i guess um but like i said we do have good content for those who are not subscribers and are subscribers, uh, we have a great guest this week. Actually, uh, I actually listened to this podcast before coming on and uh, talking with it. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about our guest this week? Sure. But before that, so just FYI, FIGI stands for the Financial Instrument Global Identifier. 
I had so three of the words. Three of the words. That first eye screwed me up. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, we do have a really good guest on this week. His name is Hans Brown. He's the Head of Enterprise Innovation and Chief Information Officer for Corporate Technology at BNY Mellon. And um, it's, it's it was a really good chat that I had with him. We uh, actually start off with... Um, uh, talking a little bit about our meeting back in Singapore in 2017 um, and how things have changed since then. So we, we talked Why, a little bit about, oh, oh, well, for one, he's not based in Singapore anymore. Yeah. <laughs> also a pandemic, but yeah. <laughs> well, that, yeah, that too. So, yeah. Um, and we talk uh, about uh, AI and ML and then go into a little bit of uh, the future of real estate for um for the likes of banks and, and fintechs and yeah awesome. so yeah let's get to that all right see you next week hello and welcome to the podcast this week and this week i have a guest for you guys and he's none other than hans brown the head of enterprise innovation and chief information officer for corporate technology at bny mellon hey hans how are you i'm fine thank you really excited to kind of talk to you and uh, looking forward to our chat Great. I, I'm really glad we had this chance and we've actually we actually met uh, while we were back in Singapore in 2017. I didn't know you had moved back to New York. So it actually wasn't a move back. So it's actually really funny you mentioned that because, you know, becoming from I came from the UK to Singapore in 2012 to kind of set up a technology function. And then that kind of grew into what we did within the Innovation Center and so on. And then late last year, I was asked to assume a new role within New York and actually moving to the U.S. to work in the U.S. actually, can, you know, it now leaves me one continent left to work in, which is South America. And I think I'll have the whole set. <laughs> wow. OK. What, what's it like? What's been like in New York uh, since, um, you know, it's I, I hear I hear from my uh, my co-host, Anthony, that it's it's been actually kind of crazy with like riots and stuff in the past uh, you know in the this this past year so far so it's been actually so when we moved out obviously work in new york we moved out and live we live outside in the suburbs primarily because we have two very young children and we wanted the space and a different kind of experience from what we had in new york uh, sorry what we had in singapore so we wanted a very different experience so we live out but one of the things that's been really kind of in a way interesting about or not even interesting i think one of the things that's been different about the transition here is just this is now like i said our fourth continent we've now lived in quite a number of countries as we go through and one of the things that we kind of realize is each country and each location each society has its own specific challenges that are unique to it and so just in terms of kind of moving from Singapore and the society and the way Singapore structured, the size, the scale, to a country this large, with this level of diversity, with a level of history. You know, I, I mean, I was in Singapore, we celebrated this, we celebrated our 50th anniversary when I was there. And the founder of the bank I work with is the bank's 234 years old. And the company is older than the country I left. So it's just a different scale. So one of the things I'll say is it comes with its own challenges, some which are really concerning. And I'm kind of enthused by the response of corporates to 
how they're dealing with the social challenges and some in terms of they in effect afford us opportunities to take a look at where we are as a society and say what kind of society do we want to create for ourselves what kind of society do we want our children to go into and how can we as individuals and as organizations affect the change that we want to see in our future so it's been a very different experience one that comes with its ups as well as its downs but you know it's a different country, it's a different experience, and there's no way to compare it to other than itself. Okay. Usually at the end of the year, I would be in, in New York, actually. Um, uh, it's just a shame this year that I probably won't be making it out. <laughs> it's a quarantine when you come back. It's a two-week quarantine, <laughs> living in a hotel when you come back, that makes it challenging. No, we were, and just as a family, you know, we have long ties to Singapore, we have lots of personal relationships, and part of, you know, we were actually looking forward to spending the summer holidays in Singapore versus spending them here. But obviously with COVID and the lockdown, we've been all in Sursal to home. And, you know, that's been a different experience as well. You know, my wife and I were making the joke, this is the longest we've ever spent continuously in one location as a family. And thankfully it's made us stronger as a family, but then it could have gone a little bit <laughs> Yeah. Okay, well, um, we didn't I, I know this much time together when we were dating, we actually talked about it. You know, we didn't spend this much time together when we we're dating. So <laughs> thankfully, she still likes me after all this time, which is always a plus. That's, that's good to hear. I'm, I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> uh, I know you recently spoke with uh, our editor at large, uh, Max Bowie, um, more about your accelerator program. And so, so now you're currently reviewing. I know that you've you've just closed actually um, the submissions, right? So, are you now currently reviewing proposals for it? We were, and you know, and I have to make a shout out to the Monetary Authority, uh, the, the MAS, as well as Apex and AFIN. You know, the response we had was phenomenal, and we literally had responses to the problem statements from companies and fintechs all around the world. To the, to the stage where, you know, right at the deadline, we had companies emailing us to say, oh, you know, are you closing this thing in Eastern Standard Time and Singapore Standard <laughs> Time because we've got, so it was actually really, we were very infused by the amount of responses that we got. And, you know, given the volume of responses that we got, we're actually taking a little bit more time to go through the reviewing to start shortlisting the company. But for us, you know, it, it's encouraging the ability and the capability of these companies that exist all around the world. And, you know, what a partnership with similar to what we've got with Apex and just, you know, being able to get access and provide a platform for these companies to be able to showcase what they can do. And then in effect, maybe earn a place in our accelerator program is something that, you know, we're pretty, pretty excited about. So the team is furiously at work assessing all the proposals, including the ones that emailed me personally and a huge chunk of my team to say we might have been close to the deadline, but could you, you know, would you sneak us through? And you know, we we were very pleased with the response back. Very, very pleased. Okay, and I know you also. This kind of really stemmed from your uh, an investment that you made in Kingfield, uh, an AI platform for improving client service for for custodians, which is kind of like the area that we want to that I want to talk to you a little bit about today. Um, so uh, just in terms of the challenges that you see firms like yourself, you know, in, in implementing AI and machine learning models, uh, whether it is to, whether it's for an, an internal uh, process or whether it's like more to uh, a client facing kind of uh, uh, thing, you know, what, what, 
what are the biggest challenges that you you see um, that, that you guys go through? So let me maybe answer that question in a couple of different ways, because I think it's there's never a linear answer to all of these. So my perspective is one of the things I'm really kind of enthused about as an organization is we're very clear on what we're great at. And there are things which we are, you know, and I make the joke, we're beyond world class at. We're experts. We're experts in a way that, you know, we define and set the standard. But the organization has a humility that's basically built in that says, we don't know everything. And so there are things where other people are the same level, have the same level of expertise in their field that we do. And we want to create an ecosystem that allows that level of capability to be brought into the organization for our benefit, for the benefit of the organization that creates that capability, and also for the benefit of our clients. And in some instances, the benefit of the wider and the wider ecosystem. So, you know, if I kind of think Kingfield is an example of an investment we made, we're incubating, we incubated them for a length of time. We're looking at that capability, but that becomes an that becomes an industry-wide capability that makes and raises the bar for everybody. So, you know, if you kind of think of the saying, a rising tide will lift all boats. If we create the conditions that, that lift up the tide, every one of the participants in the ecosystem will benefit. So there are investments and there are partnerships that we enter into that are actually industry-wide. And we generally enter into those with other, other banks and other consortium members to build something that's better for the ecosystem as a whole. There are other investments and other things that we do that are very focused on gap, not so much as gaps, or enhancements in our product line that our clients are looking for. We go out and we source best-in-class capability and bring it in. So we announced a while ago our partnership with a company called EasyOps that basically applies artificial intelligence to reconciliation. Reconciliation is an issue for everybody. But our ability to bring this capability into our organization improves the service we give to all of our clients. And it becomes a real value differentiator for us in terms of the service our clients get. So the accelerator program is part of, you know, it's a small component of a wider perspective of work where we look at our partnerships, our alliances, how we look at our strategy that looks to open, you know, real openness to the world, a real openness to how individuals want to experience their journey in terms of how we create, how they service, how they create, they service and they invest their assets. Mm. Okay, and, and particularly at, at BNY Mellon, I mean, for uh, in terms of innovation, uh, particularly for uh, corporate technology and capital markets technology, what would you say are the low-hanging fruits and how would you differentiate between those and the longer term, perhaps moonshot um, kind of projects that uh, you, know, you guys are looking at? I have a thing about low-hanging fruit. And the reason why I had it is just because it's easy to get to doesn't make it the right thing. Mm. So the way we kind of look at all of the work that we do is what is, you know, and if, first of all, what is the outcome we want to enable, whether it's for us or our clients? That is paramount. Just because it's the easiest in the first outcome doesn't mean it's the one that you need to go for. Because I see in my journey in terms of all the other companies I've worked for and, and been in this industry for a while, it's not always the first most immediately available thing is the thing you need to focus on. So the way we kind of looked at the world is 
you know, with a, and it's close to a three lens view. The initial lens is how do we look at ourselves? How do we digitize our existing core? How do we digitize the processes right at the core of our organization? Second lens is how do I improve and reimagine client journeys and client outcomes on the services I do today? The third lens then is how do I create brand new services that I don't offer today that I can use to be able to offer to clients? So it's less about the ease of being able to access that point. And it's more about where on all of these lenses are the outcomes that you're looking for. And they can all be hard. Some can be easy across the two, but that laser focus on the outcome first versus the efforts that is required to get something is the first piece. And it drives everybody crazy when I say this, but it's, you know, it's something that we're absolutely, you know, my boss is just laser focused on. It's, you know, define the end state, define where you want to get to. And once you define where you want to get to, then the second, the rest of these things come. Now, where you want to get to might have steps, one of which might be immediate. And if that's what we call the low hanging fruit, bang, great, there we go. But the destination is paramount. So across these horizons, we've got you know individual initiatives that are basically span all three. You know, they create new businesses, they reimagine existing journey, existing businesses and existing services we offer, as well as really digitizing our core. And then the partnerships that we have actually form a huge strategic component to that. So if I look at you know our approach as being really open. Unlike some of you know, unlike other organizations which have a closed ecosystem, ours is really open. You know what? You use this as your automatic system. That's not an issue. We're open to it. We're not going to force you to make a change to go, you know, into it. So it's really taking the strengths of what openness brings to arrive at the destination the client wants to get to. Just looking at those three uh, lenses that you mentioned earlier, you know, could you provide some examples of, uh, you know, looking through those three lenses, some of the projects sure. that you are currently working on? Yeah, so if I kind of look, so if I kind of look at the first lens and I'll pick things that, you know, we basically, and that, you know, so the first lens we looked at, how do we improve some of our own internal operational efficiency? So we looked at reconciliation as a case. And we looked at how would we digitize the process as it exists within our organization. So organizations like Kingfield, EasyOps, and so on bring that capability that allows us to digitize the core of the business. Now, I made the joke, nobody ever, you know, you can build a better client experience by making sure reconciliation, the reconciliation that needs to happen is invisible to the end client. So it never becomes a problem. Similar in the way, you know, the utilities are never a problem. You know, nobody wakes up in the morning and thinks, oh, I wonder how the electricity gets to my house. What you think about is when I turn the light switch, does the light come on? That's what you think about. So how do we digitize the core so that in the case, when you turn on the light switch, it just happens. The magic that's needed to make that happen, whether I'm doing it by, you know, whether I'm doing it behind with AI and so on and so forth, the outcome, that's that horizon one or that lens one in terms of digitizing that existing core. Other projects, there are projects that we've looked at, which are what are existing journeys for some of our big lines of business? So for instance, what are we doing in our wealth management business? What are we doing in our asset servicing business? How do we reimagine the existing journeys the clients are going through within these particular businesses? 
And we've done work in around both of those, you know, and I just paid two of those. We obviously there's been more, but those two were actually really interesting because there's a huge amount of effort that basically goes into the customer journey mapping, the value value outcomes, the digitization of those things, and just that whole reimagination of the client experience. Then the third one is we've obviously done some work and we've launched um, front of solutions. And this is a business that we weren't in previously. So it's work that we've done to basically launch a business that we weren't in previously and now we're in. So there is work across all of these three horizons. And for us, it's very important to look at all of those lenses. Okay, so then uh, just just coming back to maybe reimagining or re-engineering some of your existing processes already, uh, where would the biggest challenge be in terms of like maybe layering on perhaps a quick fix um you know that the whole idea of uh, technical debt you know how do you minimize that if if you are you know looking to um i, I don't know whether it will be correct to say you know taking a little bit of a shortcut and uh choosing a uh maybe implementing a cheaper but inferior platform that uh, to solve a problem um it's it's kind of where um rpa has uh taken a bit of a bad rap there, you know, um, how would you deal with something like that? So I'll maybe answer it in two ways. The first piece is you first got to decide what you want to build, then you've got to decide the tools to kind of address it. So RPA is a great tool. It solves very specific problems and it solves those really well. Let me give you an example that one of our colleagues, an analogy one of my colleagues in Singapore actually kind of came up with, and credit goes to Greg Gray for this. We were talking about something similar in terms of, you know, the proliferation of tools that are out there and what, you know, the, what they generate. And the analogy he came up with, which kind of really resonated with me, I'm going to use this in comparison to RPA is, we decided to go to the moon. And then afterwards, we developed rocket technology, we developed spacesuits, we developed landing gear, we developed return chutes, we developed everything with the objective of going to the moon. We didn't build a rocket and go, oh, what can we do with this rocket? Let's go to the moon. So having, going back to the first point I made, which is having clarity on what it is that you're trying to solve, allows you to pick the right tool. And the danger that I see in a lot of these things is you use one tool for everything. It's like trying to build a house with just a hammer. <laughs> you know, you get a rubbish house, full stop. There'll be bits that really need the hammer that are gonna be amazing. But there are other bits, such as fitting the windows in, trying to fit it with the hammers, you know, a little bit more fraught. So it's having the right selection of the tool for the outcome. So that's the first part. So in terms of RPA and all of those things, if you have clarity on the outcome you wanna to get to, and you have a structured process to picking your tooling, your methodology to get to that outcome, it actually is a lot easier. The second piece in terms of for us is what your organizational philosophy is. Because if your organizational philosophy is, I have to build everything, I have to be closed as an ecosystem, then you're limited and constrained by what you can do. You're not constrained by what's possible. You're actually constrained by what you can do. So for us, philosophically, we have decided we're open. We need solutions that are modular. We need those solutions to form, you know, an easily networked effect. We need those solutions to be easy to integrate. That basically allows you to be, in effect, not constrained by what you can do, but be constrained by the collective intelligence of everybody. 
And so philosophically, you know, if you have that as your locus and your center of focus, then it becomes easier in terms of your selection of capabilities, your selection of tools, your selection of methodologies, all of those things, because your guiding principle is, is it open, is it modular, is it networked, and does it integrate? And so for us, we call that our Omni approach, and it's a very, very big deal for us. But philosophically, if you get that right, then the rest of it becomes easier because being open, being modular, being able to create a network allows every client to power their own growth, whether it's through distribution, data analytics, allowing them to increase their resiliency and efficiency, being able to drive agility, and making the right technology choices to get to the outcome they want because you're not constraining them to what your closed ecosystem is capable of providing. That part is really important. So I think if you have that, then there is a place for RPA. There is a place for the application of AI. There is a place for the application of, you know, for the application of a front office or a middle office solution. It's just, you've got to design it really open. You've got to design it to be able to plug together in as frictionless a manner as possible. Then you don't have the problems that you do when you read, you know, RPA, everything is RPA, then suddenly you get to what I call peak bot, and there's no more bots that you can create. Okay, um, that, that's really interesting. Do you see many firms, um, perhaps it's your peers or your clients or, well, any other firms out there, you know, uh, particularly in the capital markets that are, I, I guess, in your analogy, building a house with a hammer? So I kind of, and you know, my approach with all of these things is I focus on what we can do and our approach and, you know, I leave others to focus on what they can. So I think there are organizations that do go for closed systems. They are organizations and, you know, they make the choice depending on, you know, they make a choice depending on what their philosophy is at the time. I've been a real proponent of openness because, you know, if I kind of think of all of the major things that we use and all of the pivots that organizations that grow, being open to the world actually allows you to harness the collective intelligence of everybody. And that for me can only be good. So whether it's in capital markets, whether it's in the, you know, whether it's in capital markets, whether it's in um, front office, whether it's a middle office automation, just being open and being able to plug things in philosophically just feels more comfortable. Mm. Now, other organizations can differ and, you know, different organizations make their own choices. But my feeling of it is just, you know, if I have a choice of 100,000 brains working on a problem, I have a choice of the number of brains that we can, that exists in my organization. I'd rather have the hundreds of thousands of brains working on the problem. And also it does make it easier going forward to be able to integrate all of these fintechs that we talk about. You know, their services then plug in a lot easier than if they constrained by a street jacket that I define. But the openness for me is really, really key. I just, you know, it just it makes sense on so many levels. OK, so uh, my next question is, uh, I guess, more related to, you know, what a lot of firms have been facing this year, which is that many of their rental space, their offices basically have been left empty for the majority or the better part of this year. Um, so I, I'm just wondering what what are your thoughts uh, on, um, you know, what what is the future for banks that do rent their office space versus those who already own maybe some of their buildings? You know, is there a way that uh, you see them perhaps turning it into a little bit of a, a kind of like a WeWork for uh, 
uh, fintech partners that they're working with, or perhaps if if you are bringing them in, perhaps with your accelerator program, you know, for example, you know, what are what 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 is the future for office space? So maybe the way it's kind of the way at least I look at this is what's the future of work? What has happened to the future of work post COVID? And I think a lot of our commonly held assumptions over what work is and where work gets done, obviously have been challenged really heavily by COVID. And I think that, so I kind of look at the problem less as what's the future of office space and so on. It's, but my more philosophical approach to this is what's the future of work? And I'll say human beings by our very nature are a social species. And, you know, we collaborate, we read body language, we do lots of these things. We follow the social cues, we form relationships, and those relationships inform how we deal and we negotiate and how we relate to each other, which basically allows us to create things together or not. And those social binds are, are really strong and those social binds are necessary for us to get to an end state. Now, on the other side, We've gone, I think the whole world has gone through an experiment where we've all been working from home for um, huge amounts of time. And our perceptions of where work gets done in the last six to eight months have changed. And so I think going forward, the better answer I think all organizations need to kind of look at before we even get to the question of what we do with the spaces that we have is how do how does an organization, given what it does, envisage the future of their work? and where that work gets done. Is there work that requires hyper collaboration that needs to build on the social connectivity? Is there work that requires close focus that may not need that level of proximity? Do teams operate in pods and need to come in to basically reestablish social capital? Because at the end of the day, it's a social capital between human beings that basically allows us to get through the challenges that we face. And social capital is formed when we interact now, as great as a virtual interaction is, we're human beings. We need that person-to-person -person physical interaction. Now, that's not to say we can't sustain relationships virtually. So my kind of personal feeling on this is relationships and that social capital will need to be refreshed. And how organizations use spaces that they have map to the work that needs to get done, to the maturity and the drift of their teams, and the establishment of that social capital that allows a team to maintain that level of high performance will be different for each organization, will be different for each team and so on. But the organization that can flexibly do that, marrying both concepts of the, you know, and allowing people to be their entire selves, that, that right there, that's the organization we win. Less so the organization that says, this is what I'm going to do with my office, this is what I'm going to, you know. For me, the focus has got to be really on what kind of organization do you have? How do you refresh the social capital between the people who are going to be working to help you on the journey that you're going through? How do you basically create brand new social capital? How do you leverage the mechanics that you didn't think were possible, that you now realize are possible by this massive experiment we as a society have gone through? So that for me is the real challenge, but I still believe deep down as a social species, we do need some level of physical interaction. 
So we started off this interview reminiscing about a time when we met in person. <laughs> how many years ago? To 2017. Three years ago, yep. Now the question is, will we have reminisced the same way if our first interview and our first interaction was by the same virtual means? But clearly we had an opportunity to interact, establish social capital that basically got us to be able to maintain and sustain a social capital a few years down the line. Would I be able to do the same with introductions and relationships I formed initially virtually? Would those relationships be supplanted by the relationships that I formed physically? That, I don't think anybody knows the answer. But the whole world has been in this massive experiment, and, and, and you know, a forced experiment, whether we liked it or not. So I think the future for me is a little bit unclear. But the organizations that maintain the flexibility that really look at a people learning first centered approach are probably the ones that are going to come out of this really well. Mm, but but even as flexible as um, organizations can be, I mean, there are thousands of employees, right, at your firm, for example, it's would it just be a, a nightmare for HR to 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 manage, you know? And then what about when it comes to uh, specific teams and specific managers, and then specific regions as well, where you know, um, for example, in, in Japan, like, you know, working from home was a <laughs> nobody did it basically. Nobody did it. Yeah. <laughs> to to now, you know, actually having to. Uh, you're being forced to work from home. It's 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 a very uh, culturally different or culturally unaccepted kind of thing. So how do you how does an organization then deal with that fact that there's so many different factors involved? It's not only like oh we kind of like paid empty rent you know for the past seven eight months you know how are we going to kind of uh, kind of re recoup some of that uh, so-called investment. Um, you know, uh, whether it's renting out space to fintechs at a, maybe a cheaper rate than well, maybe we work or something like that, or or whether it's, you know, to renegotiate, um, I guess, contracts with, with current employees and saying like, okay, um, uh, and, and, and I may be going down a rabbit hole here because it's like, okay, oh, you want to, you, you choose to, you, your manager's fine with it, your team is okay with it, with uh, you, for example, working remotely. Does that mean that your salary package needs to change because you don't have to commute to the office anymore? Um, yeah. And I think those are all great questions. And they're questions that every organization is going to have to wrestle with. But there's also, for me, there's a piece that's missing in all of this. And for me, the piece that's missing in part of this conversation, I kind of started off with, after this, what is the future of the things that we and how we do things? You know, will this level of connectivity mean we look at collaboration moving, you know, if I kind of think previously, maybe collaboration was swung really heavily to the physical and very little on the virtual. Does this mean the pendulum therefore swings a little bit more to the middle? Because you know, I, I kind of look, irrespective of whether you're using it, somebody else is using it, the outcome that they need that space for still is true. So let's say, you know, I kind of took, you know, WeWork, for instance, people go into WeWork, they rent the WeWork place for a reason, and they choose to work in a WeWork place as opposed to the Starbucks or a home for another reason. 
in order to be able to maybe create something that didn't exist before, to harness their collective, they want to really force the creation of that social capital. So whether the HR systems and so on, I kind of, again, maybe it's a wrong way to look at it, but I think organizations step back and say, where do we want to get to? What kind of talent do we have? And how do we basically take all the learnings we've had from this unforced experiment and say, how do we bring that back in? What do we think about the work that we did? How our people did this work? How did they perform during the time that we had? And how do we make this work for us? Now, will anybody get it 100% right? I doubt it. Just like, you know, organizations went at different speeds in terms of their work from home. One of the things I was kind of making a joke a little while ago is I was talking to one of the particular clients and I said, look, if this time last year we'd been sitting down having a talk and I said, in six to eight months, 97% of everybody in BMY Mellon is going to be working from home. He would have looked at me like I was crazy. <laughs> but lo and behold, in 14 days, we were able as an organization by virtue of the investment and leadership that we have within the organization, we're able to pivot to 97% of our people working from home. It was a 95%, but that's insane. But if you'd asked me that before, I'd, you know, it'd be like, no, why would we? So the way, the way I kind of look at this pandemic, what's happened is the realms of what is possible and the realms of what we think we can do usually are challenged by the environment. And we will respond to it. And I think organizations respond to it. The organizations that respond to it better will do better. The organizations that don't respond to that well, well, they won't. But it's just the next evolution for me of the challenge. You know, will this speed up organizations to working in a pod structure where cross-functional pods basically do work? Will this speed up organizations to a more agile methodology of basically doing work and having autonomous teams doing, you know, Maybe that's the pivot that will happen. But as an organization, for me, the thing that really should drive anything is, you know, having that focus on what is it that as an organization you're about. Everything else has to point to what is it that you want to do? What is it that you want to do? And then after that, you kind of, in effect, you've got to look at the talent that you have within the organization and so on, and then work to it. So the other conversations about, you know, whether, you know, I work from here, how do I bill and so on and so forth. It depends on, you know, it depends on A, the outcome you want to get to. It depends on what the talent is willing to accept going forward. And it depends again on how badly you want to be an organization that has the best talent that wants to grow and to be able to kind of, so I, I don't think there's a crystal ball in any of this, but I do think there needs to be a methodology within an organization to say, this is where we, this is what we are about. This is what we want to get to. These are the outcomes we want to generate. This is the kind of talent we want to have. This is the kind of speed we want to do. These are the learnings that we've had from this experiment, this unforced, I keep calling it an experiment because I can't think of a better word today, but this is what we've learned from this period. And this is how we're going to respond and organizations will respond at different speeds depending on their maturity and their capabilities but you know like i said if you'd ask you know if the client and i or you and i had been sitting down and i said in eight months time almost all the world's going to be working from home we would have said no that's not possible but clearly it is possible because the human condition means we can actually adapt and do things better than some of the time we think we can i have a lot of faith in humanity i think we're better than we make out <laughs> Oh, but you're, you're right. It has been a huge uh, experiment this this year. Uh, I think it just shows how, I guess, resilient 
humans are. Um, and the the willing, willingness and the uh, capability to adapt to different situations that they didn't even see coming their way. Um, <laughs> it's, I was, it's funny you say I was looking at um, I was looking on um, uh, one of the social media platforms where people were posting their workplaces. There was somebody who was actually had their computer on an ironing board in a room. <laughs> and it was just like I was like thinking, wow, you know, this guy basically ended up with a standing desk, a seating desk. But the designing board basically did all of those things together. It was, you know, and it's just the ingenuity and, you know, it's, it's ingenuity, the adaptability. And it was it was a real eye opener for me. You know, this person went home and had a standing desk. <laughs> wow, why did I think about that? <laughs> it was I'm brilliant. sitting on the floor I, right I now. <laughs> the action you did. And I thought, wow, you know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, interesting. Okay. <laughs> well, I think this has been a really uh, good conversation that we've had, an interesting and a fun one. Thank you very much for joining me on the podcast this week, Hans. And thank you very much for having me. I really enjoyed it. And I hope next time it doesn't take us three years in a pandemic before we get a chance to have another conversation. <laughs> because if it does, I don't think we can have another pandemic. <laughs> okay, thank you. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. <laughs>